0: Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Andrew Ferguson, a senior editor at the Weekly Standard. Andy, welcome to Profiles. Thank you for having me. You were born in Hinsdale, Illinois, and grew up there. What are the memories of growing
1: up? Well, uh, completely placid it was a nice bubble sheltered from whatever else was going on in the 1960s, and the late 1960s. I, re- I remember my one s- sort of uh, exposure to reality outside of this little leafy suburb where I lived was my mother got tickets for us to go see Man of La Mancha down in the Loop in Chicago. And so we drove down and uh, – at this very nice theater and then we turned around and we came back and as we were coming back you could see smoke rising along the west side on the Eisenhower Expressway and uh, my mother turned on the radio and Martin Luther King had been shot and the west side was starting to go up in flames and my mother sort of pressed on the gas a little faster and um it was something that you you know you just uh don't quite envision when you're you know worrying about Girls in the sixth grade, and uh, you know whether you can um, play baseball that season or not,
0: were you reading and writing much
1: no well i read I read quite a bit, but writing um was always very hard for me, and so i never never really caught into it i still I still haven't <laughs> figured out whether I like it or not. I early on got a um an appreciation i think for How how musical words can be. Um, My father was a lawyer, and he uh, introduced me to um, Abraham Lincoln and and particularly the writings of Abraham Lincoln. And I I tell this story in my uh, book that I wrote about Lincoln that um, I had these old sheafs of. of uh, that I got uh, paper that were meant to look antiquated. They'd kind of been stained, and, and they were in Lincoln's handwriting. And it was the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural. And I remember I would sometimes just sit up and, and read these things. And it and there was something about the language that was exhilarating to me, and the, the clarity and the cadence and um, uh, just the, the movement of it. Um, really stirred me, and I thought, boy, you know, you can really do things with words. And um, so it started my interest in Lincoln, but it also started my interest in the whole notion of trying to make things happen with words. What did your mother do? She was a homemaker.
0: Mm -hmm. And as I recall, when you got ready to go to college, you wanted to go some distance away.
1: My, uh... (laughs) My thought was, um, uh, I I got out a map, and I tried to figure out how far away I could get from Chicago and remain in the contiguous United States. So that eliminated Hawaii and um, Alaska. And then I realized, oh, it's Southern California. And by that time, I'd been poleaxed by the um, Beach Boys. And like many Americans of my generation, we actually bought it. We believed it. (laughs) And so I went out there to... Uh, applied to a school in uh, Los Angeles called Occidental College and uh, went out there expecting to, you know, see woodies and and tans and bikinis and blondes and everything. But, in fact, I was in East L.A. in Eagle Rock, California, which there were very few beaches around there. Um, so it turned out to be more complicated than I thought. What was your major? I majored in uh, philosophy and religious studies. Partly because uh, I had gotten a really good grade in a religious studies class my sophomore year. So I thought, okay, I can take that one. Um, it was about the only thing that actually raised my GPA.
0: And you got into politics for the first time there?
1: No. Actually, my introduction to politics was also in 1968 when I was 12,
0: I guess. Democratic National Convention by chance?
1: Yeah. And, and my my brother had gone off uh, to college and had uh, almost flunked out because he uh, went to Wisconsin to work for Gene McCarthy in the Wisconsin primary in 1968. And I sort of, I had such such admiration for my big brother, I started to look into this McCarthy fellow. And so I volunteered at the um, DuPage County McCarthy headquarters, which uh, back in those days, uh, I mean, being the um, headquarters for Eugene McCarthy in DuPage County was uh, sort of like – it was the few Democrats who were in in, uh, uh, DuPage County all clustered there in the McCarthy headquarters. And so I developed this real fascination with McCarthy. He was another one who was actually a writer rather than a – I thought of him more as a poet and a writer rather than a politician. Um, And actually one of the great – privileges of my life later when I moved to Washington was I got to know him fairly well and spend time with him and uh but that 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 really started my my political life um such as it was
0: so at Occidental were you involved then with the democrats or the republicans
1: I was involved with the Buddhists I, I decided I was a Buddhist uh when I was probably about 19 and uh pretty much stayed that way for quite a while. And I think I was sort of attracted to um, Eastern religions partly because of their otherworldliness and the anti-political nature of them. I didn't really um, think that there was much point to politics, that politics had anything to do with real life. I I did like Jerry Brown quite a bit, who was then the governor of uh, California, and I worked in his uh, presidential campaign in 76. And again governor now. Yes, and governor again. Boy, does that make you feel old. Or young. I don't know. Maybe it should make us feel young. But anyway, so uh, aside from that brief brush with Jerry Brown, I pretty much stayed out of it for a long time.
0: What did you do when you graduated?
1: I decided that uh, with a religious studies degree, I should probably try and be a rock star. And uh, this had been an ambition of mine. Uh, for As it had been for most males of my generation for many years, and I wanted to be a beetle, but they broke up before I could join and so I uh, uh, got together with a number of uh, my old friends, uh, actually from Illinois, and we started a band this was before I graduated from college, just to make some money and then finally, uh, I was out of school and out of work, and the only possible income I had was. Doing gigs with this band, and it was sort of an oldies band in part new wave, and we did a lot of cover versions so we we would play fraternities out at ucla or u s c and anything parents without partners dances uh, coca cola marathons um, we also uh, had a some very serious brushes with um, with death at uh, at Camp Pendleton, which is down the road and towards San Diego from Los Angeles and uh our agent who was an obviously incompetent <laughs> decided that he should sign us up to uh play at the um enlisted men's club in Camp Pendleton and this was this wasn't like the officers club where the people are like 28 and sort of civilized these were raw recruits who right when they got done with basic training were given one night to blow off all the steam at the club and those are the crowds that we played for. And uh, I remember the first time we went down there, I walked into the back of the club where the sergeant was who was – we were going to sign the contracts. And he had some special things that he wanted me to sign which were indemnifying them against any kind of physical violence that we might be subject to. And he said, now, you know – I said, I don't know if I want to sign these. And he said, well, you know, let let's just have a for instance. Suppose, you know, the boys get a little drunk. And they throw a cherry, you know, and it hits you upside the head. We don't want to have to pay for that, so go ahead and sign. And uh, so, of course, I signed because I needed the, whatever it was, 150 bucks. that they were. I finally quit the band. And what I, was the band called? Buddy and the Returnables, uh, inspired by returnable Budweiser bottles, which we had plenty <laughs> of. And uh, I finally, I, I was renting a house for $35 a month. And I finally quit the music business when I couldn't make the rent. And then what? Well, then I uh, went off to uh, to Berkeley in graduate school. And uh, in uh, I was enrolled in uh, an Episcopal seminary and the University of California uh, philosophy department where you – if you wanted to take anything because of church-state issues, I guess, if you wanted to take anything – About uh, religion or theology, you had to enroll in one of these um, seminaries outside of campus, uh, which I did, and um, I didn't really want to be a a priest or anything, but I I was pursuing my interest in Eastern religions and comparative religion, and uh, that lasted about a year. Too.
0: What did you? Get, did you get anything special out of the seminary experience? Because that's a different kind of environment. In a...
1: It was quite different from, from Camp Pendleton um, <laughs> or, or, you know, the Whiskey-A-Go-Go or the Troubadour or any of those places on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, it was uh, an interesting moment in time uh, because the Episcopal seminary where I was, the, the Episcopal church was really up uh, in, in great upheaval. They just admitted women priests, for example. Um, They revised their prayer book in ways that conservative Episcopalians objected to. Uh, And so there was uh, a lot of ferment there. And I actually got the idea that I was seeing something dissolve, um, uh, that the the, uh, Episcopal Church, which I'd been raised in nominally, um, was turning into something different and – uh, I, I was just sort of watching it happen before my eyes. And it was, you know, in classes and, and talking with the other seminarians. It was quite an interesting experience that way. So
0: you, you stopped going to Berkeley after a year. Did you have dreams of being a college professor?
1: Yes, I did. And I had a great uh, friend or sort of a mentor who was in the philosophy department who, as I recollect, had his uh, – his, his mentor was John Searle. Who was the most famous philosopher in America at the time? I guess still is. Uh, He, I believe, was having his thesis published by the University of Chicago Press, which is, as you can imagine, unfathomably prestigious. And uh, he couldn't get a job. This is in 1981 or 82, and then. uh, And I thought, boy, if he can't get a job, he ended up getting, you know, a one-year appointment somewhere. And you know, we used to call them the academic gypsies. You load up the VW microbus every year and and go to the next adjunct professorship somewhere. And I just thought, uh, you know, that'd be even worse than being a musician, um, you know, without the girls. And so I uh, decided that um, that wasn't for me either. What was it that appealed to you about being a professor? The hours. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh the, the having the summer off was was very nice. And also just being immersed in ideas and um being able to think for a living. I thought that was that was a pretty neat way to live.
0: When did you first get into writing?
1: Gosh, let's see. I, I had uh I recollected once that I o over the next couple of years I lived in I think seven different cities. And, um, I worked as a paralegal and I, you know, uh, worked as a stevedore, drove a truck for a box company, a bunch of stuff like that. And, um, but I, I was still reading all the time and I was still drawn to this idea of trying to create something with words. And, uh, so I decided I would be the, if I couldn't be a beetle, I was going to be, uh, Hemingway. So it's the next best thing I figured. And, uh, so I started writing short stories and uh, sending them off. And I, I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I had a little adobe shack there not far from the university. And I used to be able to paper the walls of this little shack with rejection notices <laughs> from the New Yorker and the Atlantic and Harper's. and So it was cheaper than wallpaper.
0: <laughs> and you wound up eventually in Bloomington.
1: Yes, I uh, figured when I realized that um, that I wasn't going to make a lot of money writing short stories, uh, and I didn't even, you know, I didn't even quite realize that nobody really makes money writing short stories. I mean, except for maybe Fitzgerald and John O'Hara back in the days of Colliers and Saturday Evening Post in the twenties and thirties, um, but I was still quite. Uh, innocent of reality i i things had not really sunk in yet, uh especially about economic realities uh but it did when I was in Albuquerque, and I thought, you know I like words i 'd like to have a job uh writing or editing or having something to do with words and so I applied to a couple of newspapers figured i 'd be a copy editor or something, and realized especially back then i don 't know what is quite like now, but it was almost a closed shop where if you didn't have a journalism degree of some kind, it was very hard to get a job. So I uh, applied to several uh, journalism schools and ended up here in uh, Bloomington thinking that I could at least get a job and I could you know, be a rim rat, as they call them in the newsrooms in the old newsrooms where you'd you know, be working the copy desk until 11 o'clock at night and then go home and write my Hemingway-like novel.
0: Do you have any idea why you wound up choosing Indiana?
1: well uh I got offered money to come here, and since I had none, this is <laughs> somebody actually offering to hand me money was such a revelation again it didn't it didn't help me in terms of realizing what reality is like. It kind of kept the fantasy going a little bit but uh Trevor Brown, who was then the dean, arranged for me to um get a grant to uh to go to school here and
0: there's a poetic, nice poetic uh, connection there that Ernie Pyle's last home was in Albuquerque. That's right. And uh, then right. you wind up in Ernie Pyle Hall here. What, what did you do during
1: your time in Bloomington? There was a lot of time at Nick's, a lot of time at Nick's actually, um, uh, and uh, slightly less at the Bluebird. And my memory of it is, well, I, I have a couple of memories of taking some extraordinarily good and useful classes at um, Ernie Pyle Hall. One was Dave Weaver taught a statistics and polling class, which has never left me, and then in my subsequent uh, life as a journalist has been invaluable and sort of taught you how to sniff out when people are doing funny things with numbers. And uh, and I took a class from John Diltz that was um, a revelation in the sense that he, he he had he gave us one time what I thought was the stupidest assignment I had ever heard of, which was he made us go away on Friday or Thursday or whatever it was and come back the next week with 50 story ideas, 50 ideas for a newspaper story. And I thought this is asinine, but I did it. And um, and then he had us do it again, I think, the next week. And it sort of all of a sudden dawned on me that uh, what he was doing, which is getting our minds to take in the world in such a way that we could turn them into stories, turn our experiences into stories, and see everything as fodder um, of interest, of human interest, political interest, economic interest. Everything was interesting in its own way. And it was an invaluable exercise. I never, even though that lasted a semester, I don't think I ever got over that that sense. It sort of made you grow antennae. So you were trying to think of... um, Everything you encounter, you think, "Well, can I make a story out of that? Is that good?" And, um, anyway, it was it was really, really an amazing experience.
0: You first got acquainted with magazines
1: in Bloomington. Yes, well, except for my rejection slips, right? Um, <laughs> Successful <but> magazines. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I uh, another one of my great uh, memories here is I, the feeling you could get on a Friday afternoon, and it would be cold out. And you realize that you had the weekend ahead of you and you could go up to this magnificent library where there are three and a half million books and you could spend the weekend there. Everything you wanted was there. And I started doing things like reading old um, magazine writers. I I was deeply moved at one point by the essays of E.B. White and so I started looking into the old New Yorker journalists as opposed to the fiction writers. And, And this was, I thought, again, it was one of those things where you just kind of, a little light bulb goes on. It's like, I would really like to be able to do that. What these guys are doing, what A.J. Liebling is doing, or Joe Mitchell, or I want to do that. And, um, I don't think I've ever quite recovered from that, even though I've, I'm far, far behind anything Liebling ever produced. But, um, so I would go and, and spend the w- weekends up there. And so I wanted to be a magazine writer and I, I, uh, tried to do a story for a magazine that Bonnie Brownlee, who's still here at the journalism school, was putting out for students called uh, Pace, I think. And um, I wanted to do something New Yorkery for him, you know, and being a little Liebling. Um, And so uh, I couldn't come up with an idea. Uh, John Diltz hadn't helped me that much yet. And uh, a friend of mine um, suggested that I write... uh, a profile of a guy named R. Emmett Tyrrell, who ran a magazine that was then in Bloomington in a, in a dilapidated office above the Betty Jean Candy store on the courthouse square of Bloomington. Which is also um, no longer here. Which is also no longer there, although I crept up into the office space uh, the other day. The door was open, strangely enough, and it was very spooky. All the all the walls had been torn down and... Um, uh, anyway, uh, made me very nostalgic. But uh, I had actually seen The Spectator and started reading it when I was in Berkeley. And um, I was still very, politically, I was still very far to the left, but I started sort of absorbing things from The Spectator that, I, that were very unexpected to me. For example, Tyrrell could be hilarious as a writer. And it just didn't occur to me that right-wingers could be funny. I mean, what was funny about right-wingers. It's just it wasn't possible. But here he had somehow merged two alternative realities. And uh, the magazine was very erudite and it had a wide range. It wasn't just about politics, but it was about books and history and a marvelous, marvelous magazine. So uh, when my friend uh, Jocelyn Bowie suggested that I do this thing with Tyrrell, I thought, oh, that's perfect. So I went and I hung out with Tyrell for about a week and we got to be good friends. And um, he offered me a job, which was beyond my wildest dreams, that I could actually have a job at a intelligent magazine.
0: Has it ever seemed to odd going from the left part of the political spectrum to the right?
1: Well, I remember there was a Saturday Night Live skit from, I think, 1980 or maybe 84. I had this experience myself, and it – a guy is talking to his friends and it turns out that the guy says, well, you know, I'm going to vote for Reagan. And his friend goes, wait a minute, I'm going to vote for Reagan too. And then another friend comes, you're going to vote for Reagan? I'm going to vote for Reagan. I had friend. this happened to me in graduate school, in Berkeley of all places. I had a, 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 a teacher who one night after many, many, many bass sales kind of leaned into me and said, you know... I think I'm going to have to vote for Ronald Reagan. And I just, this is insane. How could anybody? But it's just started to happen to a lot of people I knew. And partly through the influence of The Spectator, partly through having lived in Berkeley, which I was sort of appalled by, um, uh, where, you know, it was just an extremely left-wing place. I just slowly started to uh, move that way. And it didn't, it wasn't, It wasn't like a binary thing where I flipped the switch. It was just sort of slowly developing that. And, you know, I also think, look, I was raised in Hinsdale, Illinois, you know, leafy, beautiful Republican Hinsdale, Illinois. So I suppose there's some way in which it's implanted in my DNA that I'll end up a Republican, you know. And Reagan was from Dixon, Illinois. Right. Of course. We're all Land of Lincoln guys. I can't remember the order
0: exactly of – and you obviously, having lived through it, would know a lot better whether – did you then go from the Spectator to Scripps Howard?
1: Yes. The the Spectator was here in um, uh, Bloomington and then um, Terrell decided to move it. First he was going to move it to New York and then um, somebody decided that Washington would be more – it's cheaper, slightly cheaper than New York was at the time. And so we moved out there and I went with the magazine and – uh, stayed for a couple of years, and then I was editing all the time, and I, I really wanted to try and write. And I uh, found a job at Scripps Howard Newspapers as a feature writer, and they have a used to have a huge bureau in downtown Washington. Now it's dwindled quite a bit. Yeah, sadly. In fact, another Indiana University graduate,
0: Dan Thomason, was one of their chief political. Yeah, absolutely,
1: reports. Dan was the um, was the bureau chief at the time, and quite a character, a wonderful character. I expect that that might have helped me get the job because it was quite a nice job. Um, but my Indiana connection, I think, he, he it, it sort of appealed to him. Um, but he was a great mentor too because he was one of these guys who's just like – I never did figure out what his politics were. But he was just deeply skeptical, I guess. I was going to say cynical, but that's not the right word. But he was deeply skeptical of politicians and their motives. And uh, people who wanted to acquire power, um, he always kind of had an arched eyebrow. Like, Why are they doing that? What are they up to? <laughs> and um, and I that had a had a big effect on me. Thomason was a really great journalist.
0: It's time to take a break for some music. Um, you've chosen the first movement of the first Brandenburg Concerto. Why is this your choice?
1: I don't know. I just I love Bach and I love the Brandenburg Concertos and. The first of the first sounds like the perfect thing to listen to.
0: That was the first movement of the first Brandenburg Concerto by Bach. Music chosen by our guest on Profiles today, Andrew Ferguson, author most recently of the book Crazy You, One Dad's Crash Course in Getting His Kid into College.
2: You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from... Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. You were a speechwriter
1: for George Bush while he was president. I was. What was that experience like? Well, it was uh, harrowing, uh, truly harrowing. I was working at Scripps, and... Got a call from somebody over there uh, uh, at the Bush White House. This is the first Bush, um, George H.W. Bush, um, the Good Bush, as people I think came to think of him, and uh, said, you know, we need a speechwriter. Would you like to come over? And I went to Thomason and um, I said, does this ruin me as a journalist if I if I go inside for a year? And this was right before the 1992 election began. And uh, he said, no, you really ought to go. If you have a chance to see what the world looks like from the inside of that building looking out, then you should do it. And uh, so I went over there. And when I got hired, the president's approval rating, I think, was somewhere in the high 40s or low 50s. And by... March, I had gotten it down into the mid-30s. <laughs> um, it was a disastrous year, as any, anybody who remembers that presidency will remember. Um, the internal chaos at the White House was just stunning. I I got hired by one guy in January. I started in January. He was gone by the end of the month. Uh, had another boss was a temporary boss, who then got booted upstairs, and had an. And it, by the, by midsummer, I had had five different bosses. Uh, the actual chief of staff, who was my big boss, uh, had changed three different times in six months, uh, and it was just an appalling, nerve-wracking experience. Um, I learned a lot, though. I mean, I, I would never, I would never, uh, never turn it in for anything. We, um, but I would never do it again. I would never go through it again.
0: What was it like writing speeches? Because if you've been writing articles and you've been copy editing, speeches is a kind of – it's a different kind of persuasion, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. But, uh, you know, I think speech writers say that the principles are the same, which is clarity, keep it short, keep it simple, and so on. Uh, I I don't believe that's true. I think a very good speech uh, very seldom will become very good reading or very good literature – but that's that's nothing against speech writing. That's just the way it works. And we had a problem peculiar to us, which is was that President Bush, who I admire greatly, hated giving speeches. And he had just come off the heels, of course, of the Reagan presidency, which was being seen as extremely successful. Uh, Reagan, of course, was nothing if not a great speech maker. And Bush Wanted to get out from Reagan's shadow by determining that all that showbiz stuff, all that big hoo-ha, public presentation, and all that stuff was not for him. He was going to strike out on a new way. So he, it was, it was evident in in his attitude towards uh, speeches, and he he didn't really read them closely sometimes before they were given. He would often stray from the text, which of course every speechwriter has to get used to. You know, there's a great story about George S. Kaufman, the the wonderful playwright who would write plays for the Marx brothers on Broadway and a friend is talking to Kaufman while he's they're standing in the wings and Groucho Marx is off doing the play and and Kaufman said, Wait, wait, be quiet for a minute. Oh that's right. I I just thought I might have heard an original line that I wrote. <laughs> and that that was sort of what it was like sometimes with President Bush if if he if you actually got a real line. It was, oh, hey, he liked that one. <laughs> um, but the whole informality of just kind of talking rather than giving set speeches was very important to him. You've had three books published. The
0: first one was Fool's Name, Fool's Faces, um, a collection of
1: your articles.
0: What led you to decide to, decide to put it in a book?
1: Well, uh, a publisher uh, approached me, uh, Morgan Enterkin at Atlantic Monthly Press, or now I guess it's Grove Atlantic, and he said, you know, I think we could put enough of your things together to actually make a book, and do you want to do that? And I said, do I? (laughs) Of course I want to do it. Um, And he gave me a pittance for an advance, which I say with some bitterness, but it was very nice of him to be interested, of course, and so I sort of threw some things together and put it out, and it was a good – this sounds so awful, but it was a good career move because among journalists – there is uh, what Mike Kinsley calls the lust for the hard covers. That you know, there's something. You're, you're still sitting at the kids' table when you're just writing for newspapers or magazines, and the guys over there, the big kids, get to write books with hard covers. And of course, this is an earlier pre-digital era um, that he was talking about, and, and and it it actually becomes sort of a, an emblem if you've had a book published. I'm, um, having done it now myself, I'm totally de-romanticized about the idea of having a book published, knowing how little can go into it. Um, but anyway, so I was very happy to do that. And that led to a number of other opportunities. Since I know you have
0: a sense of humor, I guess we could call that book an ego trip in two ways.
1: <laughs> well, it was, it, it, was a, it was an ego trip initially. And then the sales figures came in. so And that was a good way of deflating the ego trip. But wasn't it about egos, the book? It was about public figures, profiles of people like who I thought were particularly clownish, like uh, Barbara Streisand, Newt Gingrich, who was just then becoming a big deal, Bill Bennett, um, sort of figures at the time who struck me as slightly windy and uh, self-important. Actually, I've, I've come to be friends with Bennett since then. I never could have written the piece that I wrote. Uh, about him as I did then, um, which is just another good example of why you should never get to be friends with people you want to write about. You wrote something about yourself in that book, too, didn't you? I wrote quite a bit about myself. There is, you know, topic number one. I was, um, at the time, I was heavily uh, interested in punditry. And being in Washington, and if you're not just a straight newspaper reporter, you kind of get drawn into punditry, which still to this day, even though it's even more prevalent than it was back in the 90s, it strikes me as the most absurd possible job, which is to have opinions about everything and anything, whether you know anything about it or not. And, you know, you still, you turn on, and uh, I don't know, TV and you see someone like Mark Shields discoursing about Yugoslavian ethnicity because there's some flare-up or, you, you know, and then you, you see uh, Bill O'Reilly talking about th- some extremely complicated meltdown in the derivatives market. And, you know, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. He's, he, and chances are even the people who work for him don't know what he's talking about. But it's his job. You know, it's opine, opine, opine all day long. Uh, and it, that's just intrinsically absurd. The second book, Land
0: of Lincoln, sounds like it's a travelogue. What were you trying
1: to do with that book? As I had said, I grew up in Hinsdale um, on Lincoln Street. And uh, right down the street was a house that Abraham Lincoln had allegedly spent the night in. My father worked for a, a law firm that was founded by Abraham Lincoln's only surviving son, the only son who grew to adulthood, Aisha Lincoln and Beale. And as I said, I had been transfixed by, by his writing. And so I wanted to – partly I wanted to have kind of a busman's holiday. I really wanted to dive back into Lincoln and see if I could get somebody to pay me to do it. But also what, what really started it was I got a um, – I picked up the newspaper one morning and it's, there was a headline that said, Lincoln statue stirs outrage in Richmond and this is near my home of course in Washington DC Richmond Virginia, not, richmond, richmond, Virginia Indiana. not not Richmond Indiana so i thought you know lincoln outrage those are two words that don't really go together but what had happened was the city fathers of richmond had decided that they were going to do a reconciliatory act 140 years after the war ended and put a statue up of abraham lincoln uh in downtown richmond and there were, it, some of these guys uh, you'd call them neo confederates i guess now just went ballistic. And I thought, well, hey, maybe there's a story there. So I drove down and spent some time with them. And sure enough, it became a very interesting story in the the motives of the people who wanted to put the statue in, which were not totally admirable, and the people who hated it, uh, the idea of it going in. And they were, while not really admirable in any sense, they were admirable in this sense, that they took history seriously, they thought something was at stake and they were completely wrongheaded and, and there's actually something kind of repulsive at the bottom of what they believe. Um, they thought that it mattered. And the people who were putting the statue in, we, we would think of as being pro-Lincoln people, had motives that were partly commercial, partly self-congratulatory, partly political, but none of them really took it seriously in the sense that these guys did. And so I thought, you know, this is Lincoln has, is a a little focal point around which all kinds of things in our culture turn, and you could get you could write about the culture in a larger way if you wrote about how Lincoln is thought of by the culture. So that's that's what I did. I mean, I always kind of wanted to paint with a big broad brush about, you know like most pundits, you know, America at large, we as a people and all that kind of stuff. But you, nobody ever does that successfully, I don't think. But if you wrote about one small thing or in Lincoln's case, a larger thing, then you could get at the big picture through that.
0: Is Abraham Lincoln a true American hero?
1: Well, I, I think so. I, you know, I, I went through a lot of different phases, um, even though I had admired him so much as a kid. Uh he of course turned out to be a much more complicated person. And by the time I was in college, uh it had actually become kind of fashionable to point out well, you know, Lincoln was a racist. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't free any slaves really, and so on and so forth, that whole kind of revisionistic um, attitude towards the Ameri- uh, the American past. Uh and I was I was I fell for that as much as anybody else. I don't think there's any denying the greatness of Lincoln, but it's a complicated thing, and it's more interesting for being complicated. The greatness is not undiluted, you know. Yeah, we used to celebrate
0: holidays, Lincoln's birthday, and Washington's birthday, and now they're both lost, and it's become Presidents' Day.
1: Presidents' Day. So it, hell, it could be Warren G. Harding you're celebrating <laughs> now.
0: I mean, oh my goodness! Your most recent book, published in 2011, I have to read the title because it's a long one. Crazy you one dad's crash course in getting his kid into college. And since this is not television crazy, U is just the letter U. Uh, And you followed your son's odyssey through college admissions. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to write the book?
1: Uh, The tuition that I was going to have to be paying for my son once he got into school, that was – I mean, to be completely honest about it. But it's also one of these things that just sort of hits you uh, as as you're going through it. It hit – my son was sixteen or seventeen and every all of his friends were going through this, all of his friends' parents uh would we'd all get together and talk about the insanity of the process, how oddly it had grown and, and it kind of metastatized into this terrible chore and and uh angst ridden trial that kids had to go through, especially the sort of upper middle class uh, thing. It's sort of a rite of passage among the wealthy and the upper middle class. And I just thought it seemed absurd to me how, how complicated the whole thing had gotten. And again, it was one of those things, well, this is, this is a phenomenon that actually encapsulates a lot of how the country's changed over 30 or 40 years. And how we think about higher education is actually has to do with how we think about citizenship, how we think about our obligations, how we think about the government. And so in writing about the admissions process, I actually could kind of get at some of those things too. Plus, I I, um, I really like my kids and uh, this gave me an opportunity to spend more time with them. And your son was writing about this at the same time, wasn't he? Well, he, he – no, he's no big writer. But his one of the, the greatest trials that we had in the book was writing the personal essay, and, which is – I mean when I did it, I actually – for the book, I went back to Occidental College and they dug out my old application and I looked at it. And basically the application essay that I filled out what, or wrote was about five sentences long and it you know began, I want to go to – your college here, and then because, and then some boilerplate that I had. Well, of course, you so can't this do that this worked for now. all five colleges? <laughs> right, right, right. But of course, you can't do this now. Now, it, it has to be revelatory. It has to be self-exposing. It has to, has to you know, say something profound about the child. And, you know, so some of the questions my son had to answer were, you know, tell us about a situation in which you refuse to be embarrassed. Uh, or, you know, all of it, they were begging for epiphanies and psychological turning points. And I went to one of these overpriced college counselors, and I told her my son was having a terrible time of it. And she said, well, you just got to tell him. He has to dig deep. You know, he has to tell us his innermost thoughts. And I said, lady, he is a 17-year-old boy. He doesn't have any innermost thoughts. And if he did, neither you nor I would want to know what they are. (laughs) Um, And so he would do that. He'd sit there at night trying to write these essays, and, you know, he'd say, I'm a happy kid from suburbia. What am I going to write? I haven't had any epiphanies. And you turn around and say, Maybe you and mom could get a divorce, you know, and then you could get back together after I'm done with the essay, but just you know. And uh it, it I it an it's an awful situation to f- put these kids in simply because, you know, they want to go to college or not, as the case may be. What what's what's driving all this? Is it
0: ambitious kids and your own example would seem to say that's not the case? Um, Parents who want kids to succeed um, or colleges competing for students?
1: Well, it's uh, all of the above. Uh, You know, it's partly – one of the driving factors is parents love their children and they want to have what's best for their children. So this kind of monstrous process has grown out of something that's very admirable and wonderful, which is the, the desire that parents have to have their children succeed and be happy but it is a monstrous process that feeds off of that very admirable human desire um and there's a you know there are a lot of uh fly by nighters there are a lot of get rich quickers there are people who are trying to exploit all of that trying to tell you that no matter what you have to go to college you not only that you have to borrow money if you want to go to college you um won't be able to Succeed in life you won 't be have personal fulfillment, all these sorts of things that sound like they're public spirited but in fact are self interested talking points of people who are either trying to make a buck or or whatever else um, so it's it's a very American thing, which is we take this this desire totally natural natural ineradicable we'll never get rid of it. this desire of parents. And turn it over to buck hustlers, you know, people who want to make money off of it. And what could be more American? And then, and then they kind of ruin it in the process. If you were to walk downhill
0: here, two blocks to the Indiana University admissions office, what advice would you give
1: them? Well, part of you know, it, it's one of these things. Where it's a process now that nobody can escape. It, it, it's the the merry-go-round is accelerating and if you try and jump off you're going to get hurt if you stay on god only knows what's going to happen to you and so in my my experience of admissions people and i talked to dozens of them um was uh, very well-meaning professionals who um do have also have admirable desires but who don't know how to handle a um a process that's gotten out of control. So they're they're sort of victims of one another. There's this arms race, for example, in marketing. Well, if you're an admissions counselor, uh, every incentive in the system is to run up your applications, the number of your applications. Uh, This gives rise to this incredibly elaborate marketing structure that has now encrusted itself on higher education in America. Literally billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars are spent every year in trying to find kids, trying to make them apply. Uh, And again, I'm talking about the experience of a sort of a middle to upper middle class. This is not the general experience of Americans, I don't think. And so how do they they decide that they're not going to feed into this machine? If you're an admissions officer, well, okay, I'm not going to go marketing for kids who don't really – wouldn't benefit from my school. I'm going to let them do what they want to do. Well, then your numbers start to go down. Then your yield, as they say, uh, goes down. And you're not you, making the hundreds of billions that the universities need. Exactly. And and you start to fall down on the U.S. news ranking. And uh, your job is in danger all of a sudden. So uh, – where this ends, I, I don't know. I mean, of course, there's all this talk right now about the bubble of higher education. And I'm sure that that's true in some way. Certainly with the debt load that that's, people are graduating with, um, something's going to give. A couple of questions here at the end on
0: um, how you see yourself as a writer. What writers, past and present, do you
1: admire? Well, as I say, I, I was really uh, turned on by all these New York writers like E.B. White and Thurber and A.J. Liebling and Joseph Mitchell. Nowadays, the the people I I like tend to be um, sort of humorous but also serious. So like Roy Blunt Jr., um, there's a great writer who just died, Wilfred Sheed, who was extremely erudite um, and also extremely funny. And so you, you would read something. It's a little bit like Mark Twain in that way the the humor is is almost like the aroma that comes off the page. It's not the point. You're not reading it to get jokes. You're reading it because they have something very interesting to tell you. And the the humor is a byproduct of how – the wonderful way in which they're telling you what they wanted to say. And so she's like that and um, in a perverse sort of way, Gore Vidal who just died, who I – don't like in for many 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 reasons as a public literary figure could also do this in his essays could write about something that was um, uh, that was of interest to him and the reader and the reader will be chuckling as he goes along and and uh, again it's one it's one of those things where you read it and you say I want to do that you know as a writer he's how can I learn how to do that and. He was like that. The, uh, Dwight Macdonald is another great essayist who he's been dead for quite a while. But I just happened to be reading a collection of his essays the other day, rereading him, and it's the same thing. He has he has a, pieces about the uh, translating the Bible that will make you laugh out loud. You know, he he writes. Uh, pieces about the Webster Third Dictionary. And you're guffawing <laughs> when you're reading it. And it's, how does how does somebody do that? You know, and it's sort sort of the mystery that as a writer you'd like to crack, you know.
0: Now, I understand um some movie company has picked up the rights for Crazy
1: You. Yes, yes. The New Line Cinema, at the behest of the comedian uh Will Farrell, bought uh the an option, option rights, I guess they call them. Um, to make a movie which would star Farrell as the father. A That's movie what I was going to ask Yeah. We... And the original, uh, Farrell's original idea was it would he would play the father and Justin Bieber would play the son. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget, I called up my son when this news came and said, uh, Yeah, Will Farrell, I think Will Farrell's going to play me. and uh, And guess what? Justin Bieber is going to play you. And my son, who can is, can joke about anything, he's an extremely funny guy, there was dead silence for a full 10 seconds. And then the most serious voice I've ever heard him, use he said, Dad, you cannot let this happen. This has to stop. It cannot happen. Of course, he's a frat boy in, down at uh, University of Virginia, and he's worried he'll never get another date if Justin Bieber plays him in a movie. And he's is, probably right. Is there somebody else other than Will Ferrell that you would like to play you? Well, aside from uh, George Clooney, as I said to a friend, I said, th- you know, joking, I said, I think, I want Clooney to play me. And my friend said, oh, Rosemary? <laughs> so, no, I, I, you know, six of one, half done it, and the other. I think the whole thing, I mean, the odds against the movie actually being made are very long. But it, it, The weirdness of the whole thing is its own reward. So I have no expectations. Everything from here on out is a bonus, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Our last piece of music, um, that you've selected is um, "I'm a Believer" from the Monkees. I presume this is related to your
1: days as a boy in the band. Yes, when it, we Buddy and the Returnables would kill with the encore, and our favorite encore was um, uh, "I'm a Believer" by the Monkees. Which I, I do have to say, we we really did we did a great version of it, and everybody was always happy to hear it. But It wasn't until much later that it occurred to me, maybe they're happy to hear it because they know it's the end of the set and we're leaving. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's it's still a great rock song. And your version is not out there on YouTube somewhere? No, thank God. This was all before YouTube.
0: (laughs) That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Andrew Ferguson, writer and senior editor at the Weekly Standard. Andy, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: To our listeners, we're pleased you joined us. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson.
2: I thought love was only true Someone else, but not for me. Our love was out to get me. Now that's the way it seemed. Disappointment haunted all my dreams. Then I saw her
1: face. Now I'm a believer. I heard trace of doubt in my mind.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.